0: We have a tendency to create an image of Jesus. All of us do this. As we read about Jesus, as we uh, try to picture who this Jesus character is, we try to create an image of Jesus. And this image isn't always correct. And I think we need to fight for a correct image of Jesus. And I don't just mean how he looked. Although, that's probably something we need to fight against too. Well, uh, we don't need to fight against it. Every, every culture kind of makes Jesus look like their culture, right? So when you picture Jesus in your mind, what do you picture? Long hair. Sandals. sandals floating across the sand. No, the, the average Jew, and Jesus was a Jew, the average Jew at that time was about five foot five. Who, do we have anyone here that's about five foot five? Anybody? Lester, come on now. Finneys, <laughs> you tower over me. You're not five foot five. Anybody that's five foot five? Come on, don't be, don't be bashful. If you're about five foot five, you could just stand up so you're five foot five. All right, I'm at... 5'4", okay, so 5, yeah, there we go, so if you take a look at Amanda, about 5'4", 5'5", that's about how high Jesus was, and he weighed about 120 pounds, and I'm not going to ask if anybody weighs about 120 pounds, so he was about 5'5", about 120 pounds, he probably had very thick, curly hair, so the picture, that's probably what Jesus looked like, he probably had some olive colored type skin, that's about what Jesus looked like, all right, so, so. You know, I remember talking to this youth pastor once in Colorado who was like, he thought Jesus was like an Arnold Schwarzenegger-looking guy, and he's like, well, he was a carpenter, so he was probably super ripped and buff, and he was this big guy. Well, he was a carpenter, so he worked hard, and he was probably pretty strong, but he also probably didn't eat a lot of protein. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't the super ripped guy. He was probably looking more like about five, five, 120 pounds. So, you know, when you think about that. But, but that's our tendency, to make Jesus into our culture. And then when we talk about, like, what his characters were, what he valued, so we oftentimes start to emphasize certain things about Jesus. So you've got some of people in our culture that make what I like to call hippie Jesus. And so when they image Jesus, they think of Jesus as, like, this hippie guy with, like, once again, long, flowing hair, maybe blue eyes, and he's floating into a room with like, peace be to you. My peace I bring to you. It's all about peace. And, and these people would say that Jesus would never say anything mean or, or have any harsh words. Now, I don't think Jesus was going around throwing insults at people. But there were times Jesus had some very difficult words for people. And so there's some people that just want to emphasize the peace hippie Jesus. But then we've got the other side of our culture that want to emphasize like the Arnold Schwarzenegger, like Jesus just came to kick some butt, you know. He was, he was just there to confront everybody. And they forget about his mercy and his love. Oftentimes we try to force Jesus into our own mental picture of who he is and we forget that what we need to do is study scripture and form our mental picture of who Jesus is based on scripture and kinda get away throw away some of our preconceived ideas of who Jesus is look at scripture and then submit our ideas of who Jesus is to Scripture. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at, actually, Mark's going to outline, if you want to turn with me to Mark 4, we're going to start off in in verse 35. We're going to blaze through this today. We're, We're going to go all the way through chapter 5, and we're even going to get a little bit into chapter 6. And what Mark's doing here, if we remember what I've been talking about with Mark, he is greater than, Mark doesn't work through Jesus chronologically, whereas Luke does. Matthew gives us a little bit more of a chronological timeline of Jesus. Mark kind of moves things around and he orders things to give us a picture of what he wants us to imagine Jesus as. And so today, we're actually going to get into a little bit more of a chronology, chronological timeline here, but then he's going to fast forward at the very end. And so he's going to paint for us this picture of Jesus. And then he's going to give us some people that wanted to recreate who Jesus was based on their preconceived ideas of Jesus, all right? So that's what we're getting in today as we study through he is greater than, Jesus is greater than. The idea that Mark wants us to get as we read through, Jesus is greater than. So we're going to start off verse, sorry, chapter 4, verse 35, on that day when evening came and so we see here mark is actually tying this in he's tying in the timeline for us that after this long day of teaching uh, of teaching parables he's jumping into something else all right so at the end of all of this teaching and parables when evening had come now for the jews evening or oh, i should say a day went from evening to evening sundown to sundown so this is a new day for jesus and a lot of theologians call this day the longest day. And you'll understand why, because Jesus goes through a lot on this day. So, it's a new day, evening has come, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side. So, let's go to the next, let's go to the next slide, Josiah. We've got two slides here, and I just wanted to show a little bit. There, oh, you can't barely see that, can you? Oh, man, sorry about that. That's the Sea of Galilee. I just wanted to show you the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Anyways, there you go, you can't see it. <laughs> so pretend that there's a body of water right here, and there's a beach right here, and right here there's some mountains, okay? Now you've seen it. That's the Sea of Galilee, okay? So he's in a boat, remember, he, the crowd were crowding up on him so close That they were gonna crush him, so he had to get in a boat to teach. So they're crowding around the beach, he's in a boat teaching to them, and at the end of this teaching, he says, Let's go across the sea. All right, so that's what's going on here. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And he's trying to make the point here that they didn't go back ashore, and Jesus didn't get a new fresh change of clothes. He, He goes, He's on the boat, and they just start turning around and they're going to the other side, all right? And leaving the crowd with them uh, in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him, too. So Mark's just getting at his popularity here, all right? We don't need to read too much into this. I think too often with Mark, we try to read too into it and try to make things fit that don't exactly fit. But here we go. There are other boats. So it's not just the boat Jesus is in. There are several other boats. We don't know how many. But there are other boats with them. And a great windstorm arose. So they're traveling. The Sea of Galilee is is fairly large. They're they're to the middle by now, and it's nighttime. We know that it was evening earlier. Now it's night, and there was a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now imagine you're in the middle of the sea. There's a great windstorm. It's overtaking your boat. Your boat is starting to fill with water. There's a bit of panic. You're wondering, will we have to abandon ship? These waves are big enough that they're going to capsize my boat. Will I be able to swim to the shore? I'm sure we've got some good swimmers here. Thinking, yeah, I could do it. I know I couldn't. I'm not that strong of a swimmer. There's a bit of panic. There is a feeling of desperation here on the part of the disciples. And where do we find Jesus? But he was in the stern, asleep, on the cushion. So he's in the middle of the boat, finds a nice cushion, falls asleep. I don't think we should read too into this. Uh, He's just had a long day of teaching parables. What we see here is Jesus' humanity. He's tired. Have you ever been so tired that you could sleep just about anywhere? I remember after a long day of traveling once, I mean it was like plane after plane, I got on a plane, I just sitting up, I put my head on the front or I should say on the back of the seat in front of me and I just fell asleep before the plane ever took off and I didn't wake up until everyone was unloading their bags. That's how tired I was. This is how tired Jesus is, right? So that's all we need to understand is Jesus is tired. So he goes to the middle, and he falls asleep. That's what's going on here. He's tired. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So this, this knot here is, uh, in the Greek, it's created so that it is, uh, creates a positive reply. They expect a positive reply from Jesus. So it's like, Jesus, we're, we're perishing here. Are you going to do something? I know you care about us, Jesus. Do something about this, because we're going to die. We're not good enough swimmers. We can't make it to the, to the shore. It's going to happen. That's what they're saying. And, and he awoke and rebuked the sea. This term rebuked could also just mean command. So he's commanding the sea and the wind. And he said to the sea, peace, be still, And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? Now this is a positive response that they have, right? So Jesus, he he calms the sea, Then he turns to them and he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Do you you not trust in me? So faith and belief and trust, these are going to be common themes that we see through here, but they all have to have an object. Meaning you can't just have faith in faith. You can't just have trust for trusting. There is something that you have to trust. There is something you are putting your faith in. There is something that you have to believe in. Oftentimes we say something like, uh, or we hear people say, I have faith. What do they mean? They mean that they might have some kind of spiritual ideas, but, but what are they putting that faith in? What are they putting their trust in? There has to be an object for faith and trust and belief. So what Jesus is getting at here is, you've seen all of my miracles. You've seen what I've been doing. Why aren't you trusting me now? I am the object of your faith. Trust me. And what is their response? One is fear, but another one is awe. They're in awe of him. They've seen the miracles. But have you ever seen anyone control the weather? No. Could you imagine being in the middle of the sea, Waves coming over, crashing over. You're soaking wet. And all of a sudden, with one word, the sea is calm. Mark gives us this section right here to show us that Jesus has authority over nature. Jesus has authority over natural disasters. Jesus has authority over nature. Jesus is Lord of nature. Lord simply means to have authority of over. So Jesus has authority over it. Jesus is Lord of nature. So we get this long day of parables. It's evening. It's night. And we discover that Jesus is Lord over nature. And then they come to the other side. So they come to the other side. Now, this is a Gentile territory. Jesus so far has only ministered to Jews, or or I should say in Jewish Jewish territory. Now he's finally, for the first time in Mark, he's in Gentile territory. All right, so he's over in Gentile territory. Uh, If you're looking at our picture here, it would be over here, but you can't see that, so I'm very sorry. Just imagine it in your mind, okay? It's a body of water. You can picture that. It's blue. There we go. All right, so he goes over to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, the country, this could also mean region. So he's in this Gentile region. It's part of what's called the Decapolis, which has ten different Gentile cities in it. Uh, It's a whole geographical region, and that's where he's going to be. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately, can you imagine? You're getting off the boat, and immediately you're met by someone. So immediately there met him a man or sorry, there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So these tombs are, are uh, an area with a bunch of caves, and they turn these caves into basically a graveyard, a cemetery. So there's all these tombs, people are buried in these graves, and this man has been living in, uh, in, amongst these tombs, right? And so immediately he comes and he meets Jesus there. Now this man who comes out of the tomb is a man with an unclean spirit. Spirit, so he's demon-possessed. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Day and night among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, and cutting himself with stones. And we'll see, if you wanted to get a parallel, you could read through this in Matthew and Luke, but they don't give you quite the details that Mark gives you. And Mark is stressing something here. One is we see this man's strength. No one could bind him, not even with shackles, not with chains. No one had the strength to subdue him. I remember when I was younger, there was this group of, of Christian guys called the Power Team. Does anybody remember the Power Team? They were like these big, ripped dudes, and they would like take phone books and rip them in half with their bare hands. They were strong. They had nothing on this guy. All right, This guy was strong. Nothing could subdue him. But he was also thought of as unclean. He was living among the tombs. He was an outcast. He had an unclean spirit. He was possessed by a demon. And all of this leads to this man's misery. He's living alone, by himself. Although we do find from Matthew's account that there is one other person there that is also demon-possessed. So you've got these two. I don't think they're friends. And they're crying out day and night, always crying in insufferable pain and agony, and cutting himself with stones. He's in so much pain, so much agony, that he believes the only way he can relieve any of the pain is through self-mutilation. It's a lot of pain. And it's not just physical pain, it's that. It's also spiritual pain. It's emotional pain as well. He's been cast out by his friends and his family. Everyone who ever cared for him has cast him aside. That's emotional pain. He's demon-possessed. That's spiritual pain. And these demons are inflicting physical pain on him. This man is in pain. And so when he sees Jesus from afar off, he comes running to him. And when he saw Jesus from afar off, he ran and fell down. And we're going to see this fell down or he fell quite a bit throughout all of these stories. But the point of all of this falling down is it's a sign of submission. It's a sign of saying, Jesus, you have authority. I submit to your authority. That's what's going on with this falling down, right? So he falls down before him as if to say, Jesus, you are, you are the Lord. I will submit to you. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, son of the most high God? So he recognizes who Jesus is, the son of the most high God. This is Mark showing us Jesus' deity here. And he's showing that he is submissive to the most high God. He's not fighting with Jesus here. And he's going to continue, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. He's not negotiating. Sometimes we read this account and we think that the demon is like trying to negotiate with Jesus. He's not negotiating. He recognizes Jesus' authority. He recognizes that Jesus has the authority over him. Jesus has authority over nature. He has authority also over demons. This demon recognizes that and now he's begging. It's not a negotiation. It's just straight up begging, right? Right? Sometimes we get confused with that, like I always think about my kids, and when we've got, when we've got something that they need to do and they start a negotiation. I'm like, no, this isn't a nego- negotiation, I'm the authority. But they think they can negotiate, they think they have the authority. That's not what's going on here, okay? <laughs> this demon recognizes who has the authority, it's just begging. So he's begging, and he's crying out with a loud voice, what, oh, sorry, do not torment me. And what this is, torment means to, to subject to unbearable pain, right? And in Matthew, he, he inserts, do not torment me until our time, or do not, do not torment me before my time. And what that demon is getting at here is that he recognizes Jesus' authority, and he recognizes that there will be a time when all the demons will be bound, when Satan will be bound, and there will be an unending torment for them. But that time hasn't come yet. So he's not in this negotiation. He's just simply begging, I know there will be a time where I will be tormented. Please don't start that right now, is what he's saying. Have mercy on me. For he was saying, he being Jesus, saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And that's what caused the unclean spirit to start begging him. And Jesus asked, what is your name? Now, I think he asked that for our sake so that we'll get it because his name is going to describe him. So that's why Jesus asks his "What." asks what his name is so that we can understand. He replied, my name is Legion. Legion is a reference to uh, the Roman military, and it was about 5,000 uh, 5, soldiers. So we can see that this demon ha- is about 5,000 of them, roughly give or take a few thousand. You know, But for we are many, and he begged. Once again, we see that he's begging him begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. And we don't know why he doesn't want to get out of the country. We just know that he doesn't want to get out of that region. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged, legion, 5,000 or so demons, begged Jesus, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirit came out and entered the pigs, and the herd numbered about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and drowned in the sea. Whoa, there's a lot going on there that's kind of crazy, right? And it's this like weird ending of this exorcism. And we're not entirely sure. I'll say this. It kind of leaves us with almost more questions than answers, right? We know that this man has been, the the demon has been cast out, but this this demon then goes into this herd of pigs around 2,000, and they all go and drown themselves in the sea, which leads us to the question of like, can demons swim? They all, Apparently not. They all drown, right? But, but did he destroy them? Was this way, the way of Jesus tormenting them? Did, was this Jesus' way of having mercy on them? We don't know. Because he leaves the story of the pigs here and goes back and focuses back on the changed man. And then we get to see this res- resolution here, or the resolve. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. Could you imagine being a herdsman at this point? You've seen the crazy man who's been crying all day and night, and all of a sudden, your 2,000 pigs fly into the sea, They, or I should say run into the sea, they die, and so what do the herdsmen do? They, they're... I don't think they're caring too much about their pigs as much as they are just in shock. And they need to go tell people about what they just saw because it was so amazing. So they go and they tell people all around in the city and in the region. And the people came to see what it was that happened. We don't know the timeline here. We don't know if this was a matter of an hour or two or three hours. But we do know that they come to see what happened and they came to Jesus. So they come to Jesus They're so excited about what has happened, they come to him and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, and just think about where he was or what he was like the last time they saw him. Think about the fear that they had of him because they knew his strength, they knew his power, and now they see him sitting there clothed and in his right mind. and they were afraid. They were afraid because they couldn't control this man, but something or someone was greater than who could. And what did that produce in them? It produced fear. Because I think we often have a tendency to want to control things, right? And if we can't control this guy, but someone greater can, what is he going to do for us? What is he going to do to us? We don't want to have to to submit to this guy. And so they're afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to to depart from their region. And some people go back and they think this is a monetary thing. I don't think it was a monetary thing at all. It's a fear of his power. It's a fear because they don't want to submit. They recognize Jesus as greater than, and they recognize that there must be some submission, and they don't want that. And so they beg him to leave And I want to highlight just a couple things. One is this guy begged Jesus to go with him. And why wouldn't he? When you have come come to the end of yourself and you have felt so much pain, physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain, that the only thing left for you to do is mutilate yourself, and then some guy comes along and frees you from that pain, you want to stay with that person. It's only natural for that guy, too. But what's Jesus' reaction? His reaction is, go home to your friends. Jesus had a purpose. He lived for a purpose. He had a mission, and he knew the cross was coming. He also knew that at this moment, his ministry was to the Jews. And to bring along this Gentile man could, could negatively impact his ministry. And so what does he do instead? He gives this man a new assignment. Jesus didn't just say, no, just just chill among the tombs. He gives him a new assignment. Jesus has an assignment for you. Jesus has a purpose for your life. And it doesn't always look the same. For some of us, he's calling us to stay here in Dony Park and in Flagstaff and to share the gospel. For others, it looks like going to other countries. For some people, it looks like going to countries where there is a lot of persecution. Jesus has an assignment for you that is special and uniquely designed just for you. And when you obey the assignment Jesus has for your life, God does amazing things through you. And we can see what he did here, that everyone marveled. Now, what did the Gentiles do to Jesus? They begged him to leave. But when this guy speaks, they listened. When you say yes to Jesus, and you live out your assignment that he has for you, jesus does amazing things through you the other thing i want to highlight here is that he says go home and tell and to your friends and tell them how much the lord has done for you sometimes we think that the way we tell the gospel is just we open up the bible and we go point by point by point and we don't give them our personal story but here jesus is emphasizing that there is a personal story and that that personal story has an impact Tell people how Jesus has changed you. I think about my own life and who I was before I submitted my life to Christ and who I am now. And I think about the selfish jerk that I was, the selfish, self-righteous jerk that I was. And how unhappy I was. And how I looked for things to numb my pain. But upon submitting my life to Christ, I have joy, and I am a lot less of a selfish, self-righteous jerk. Don't be afraid to share your story, and highlight what God has done in your life. So Jesus gets back in the boat, and he crosses over again. Remember, this is still the same day. So we've already had Jesus showing that he has authority over the over nature Jesus is now shown authority over demons and now we get back on the other side we're still on the same day and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea then came one of the rulers of the synagogue Jarius by name and seeing him seeing Jesus he fell at his feet so here's this ruler of the synagogue this guy with great authority and great influence in in that section of Israel and what does he do upon seeing Jesus Falls at his feet as if to show Jesus this sign that he recognizes Jesus as Lord and he is willing to submit to Jesus, all right? And implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. And we see this point of desperation in Jairus' life. There's not a parent alive. That as their child is dying, they're not in some point of desperation. And we see that with Jairus here. He is at the point of desperation. So he says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live. And he went with him. So Jesus is going with him back to his house now to heal his daughter And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And so so again, we see that this great crowd is crushing in on Jesus. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And I want us to just stop and think about the misery that this woman has been going through. For 12 years, she has been bleeding. She has been discharging this blood and she had suffered much under many physicians, and so she had been bleeding for so long, she started to go to different doctors to try to get cured, and back then, a lot of doctors had these horrible practices that inflicted more pain on, uh, on their client, and so she was going to all these doctors, and these doctors were inflicting more pain on her, and she was and, uh, And she spent all that she had. So she was not only getting pain inflicted on her by these doctors, but she was paying them. And so she had spent all of her money and was no better, but rather grew worse. So she had spent all of her money, and not only did these doctors inflict pain on her, but they actually made her condition worse. She's at a point of desperation. She had heard the reports about Jesus, so she sees Jesus as her last hope and came up behind him in the, in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, and I love this part, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? As if like, Jesus, come on, man. This is crazy. There's people all around. We're all getting touched all the time. I don't know about you. And he looked around to see who had done it. But Jesus presses further because he knows that this woman knows. But the woman knowing What had happened to her came in fear and trembling and fell down as if to say, Jesus, you are Lord and I submit my life to you. Fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you go well, go in peace and be healed of your disease. And we see that Jesus is Lord over disease. He's Lord over nature, he's Lord over demons, and he is Lord over disease. Jesus has authority over all. And while he's speaking this to her, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? And essentially what they're saying is, it's hopeless. She has died, it's hopeless. Don't even bother him. Let him go to another town. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And that belief has to have an object, right? And what he's saying is believe in Jesus. Believe that he has authority, not only over nature, not only over demons, not only over disease, but he has authority also over death. And he allowed no one to follow except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people welling and weeping loudly. And this was a customary thing. It was a cultural thing. In fact, some Jews would even pay mourners to come in and mourn for them. Can you imagine, like, having that job? I just wonder, like, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a mourner. I just go in and I cry for people, you know? Like, that was... that's not a job I don't think I'd be good at either. I just don't know. And so, so they're weeping and wailing loudly. They're making this commotion. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him because they weren't fools. They knew what death looked like. Some people sometimes try to, uh, try to uh, excuse some of the, the times when Jesus raises people from the dead saying, well, they didn't actually know what dead was. No, they knew what dead was. They understood what dead was. They understood that this woman was dead. So why does Jesus say she is, the child is not dead but sleeping? I think it goes back to that idea that we've been studying through this of the messianic secret. Jesus knew the political ramifications of him using messianic language and him doing uh, some messianic miracles, and he knew what would happen. And so he, he keeps this messianic idea, a, a secret, so that he could go about and he could get his things done. He's strategic in everything he does. Remember that. Jesus is strategic in everything he does. And so he says, he emphasizes that she's just sleeping, and they laughed at him, but he put them outside and took the child's father and mother, and those who were with him and went in there, with, uh, the child was, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. And so we see this messianic secret idea still playing out in the book of Mark because he's not ready to reveal that he is Messiah. Now, he's still been making the claim that he is son of God come in the flesh, and if you have to remember, at the beginning of the great Galilean ministry, he's going through, he's proclaiming that he is the uh, Son of God come in flesh. And after the rejection by Israel, that's when he starts speaking in parables. That's when we start to see this messianic secret, because Jesus still has a purpose that he has to live out, and he knows the time, he knows the day when he needs to die. So that's why we see that messianic secret. And the whole point of this story is that Jesus is Lord even over death. So we see that he has authority over disaster, natural disaster, authority over demons, authority over disease, and authority even over death. And then Mark gives us one last story. He went away from there. And so we see that it's a different day. That was a very long day. A lot happened on that day. But now it's a different story or a different time. So he goes away from there, he came to his own hometown, Nazareth, and his disciples followed and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. They were amazed. They couldn't believe how he was teaching. They couldn't believe the power of his teaching. And this produces five questions, two, or I'm sorry, three questions that are in awe of him, and two questions of disbelief. So the question one, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? They're still in awe of him. They're they're in awe that he could be producing this. How are such mighty works done by his hands? They're in awe of him. And then question four starts disbelief. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and five, and are not his sisters here with us? I want to just emphasize the son of Mary. Because in that culture, what typically happened is you identified people based on their father. So the question should have been, is this not the carpenter, the son of Joseph? But what's going on here is he's back in his hometown. And what what would his hometown remember about him? They would remember the scandal surrounding his birth, the scandal surrounding his pregnancy. They would remember that Mary was pregnant before they had consummated their marriage. So what are they doing here? They're throwing this back in his face. They think that they know the dirt on Jesus, and they're throwing it in his face. Is this not the son of Mary? As if to say, you don't even know who your father is. They're saying he is an illegitimate child. And they're throwing it in his face. And this turns their astonishment into offense. And Jesus, sorry, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Because they thought they knew his history, because they thought they knew his past, because they thought they had dirt on him, they began to become offensive by his teaching. God's grace is oftentimes offensive to the legalist. When you give out God's grace, when you live in God's grace, when you accept that he has made you righteous, not based on anything you do, but based on his action, it is a Offensive to the legalist. Jesus' teaching became offensive to these people. They went from awe to offense. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Essentially, they, they thought they knew his dirt, and because they thought they knew his dirt, they would not listen to him. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, I want to make a quick point that he could do no mighty work there doesn't mean that Jesus was limited in his ability. It means that the people were limited in their faith. And so no one was coming up to him except for a few. Why weren't they coming up to him? Because... Well, he's an illegitimate child. Why would we go to him? He has the scandalous background. We're more righteous than him. Why would we go to him? And there is this crazy misunderstanding about who Jesus is. They took their culture and they viewed Jesus from their cultural lens. We notice... Over and over again, they fell down, they fell down, they fell down. They recognized that Jesus is Lord. He has authority over natural disaster, over demons, over disease, even over death. And yet there were some people that would never recognize his authority. And they twisted who he was. And because they twisted who he was, they rejected him. So when you think about Jesus, how do you view him? Do you view him as blonde hair, blue eyed, huge muscles floating on a cloud? Do you view him as hippie Jesus? Do you view him as the warrior that's going to crush your enemies? Or do you study scripture and submit your life to him, because he is Lord. Not just over natural disaster, not just over disease, not just over demons, not just over death. He is Lord over all. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can study your word, that we can continue to discover who you are, that we can remind ourselves, and as we even drift away and have this tendency to paint a different picture of who you are we can always come back to your word and be corrected and we pray that you would give us hearts that are willing to hear your correction that we would go and fulfill our assignment you've given us that people would come to know you and grow in you in your name we pray amen